it is to be with you. I can tell you that having known your pastor for so many years, to see how God has blessed he and Tammy with such leadership gifts, such ministry, and the fruit of their labor here, I'm, I'm proud to be his friend and to have known him this long. It's a joy to be with you. God's got some good stuff in store for us tonight. Amen. <laughs> I want you to remember three words if you don't remember anything else I say. First word is grace. Everybody say grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. If, you're, if you understand the word grace, it's probably because you have accepted him as your personal Savior. Freely we have received, freely we give. He said in the great commission that we're to reach all nations and make disciples out of them for by grace are you saved through faith that is the gift of God so without grace you wouldn't be here without grace we wouldn't be able to reach the world that's what it's all about the second word is hope just say the word hope I, I, I've come to believe that hope is much more important than people think it is. Grace and faith are very important. But hope is a confident expectation of something good that's about to happen. When you watch the news today, you see what's happening around the world. When you see what's happening in persecution around the world, it, it, it kind of just diminishes the hope level. The Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. How many people are hopeless today? But that key word in the middle is faith. Grace, faith, and hope. They can't get saved without faith. I believe the catalyst to faith is hope. And so if we are the hope of the world, Jesus is really the hope of the world, I wouldn't be here without grace. My wife, I wish you could meet Johanna, she was born in Holland. Her father was a survivor of the Holocaust. His dad was killed in a, a work camp. His mother was blown up in a bombing raid when he was just a teenager. They lived on a houseboat docked in the Rhine River. That's where they were having a Sunday dinner, and it was a real dark time in World War II history. It's called Operation Market Garden. The Allied planes that flew overhead were there to protect this little Dutch village, but instead a horrific mistake occurred, and it dropped a load of bombs. He'd come off the boat, walked over to the bank, looked up, waving at the planes. They were there to protect, but instead they destroyed when the bomb stopped exploding, he looked back at what had been his house, the houseboat in which they were living, and it was gone. 
He never found any evidence that his sister had ever been alive, and the only remains of his mother he could find was a little piece of scalp. He waded out into the Rhine River looking for his mom. He found a little piece of scalp floating with some hair attached. He recognized it as hers. And then he found a Bible, just a, a little Bible that he recognized as hers. Grief-stricken, traumatized, frightened, he walked the streets of that village. And as incomprehensible as it may seem to you and me tonight, he was the only survivor. And that day, he bought into Satan's lie. You've probably heard a derivative of it. If God really loved you, why would he let that happen to you? If God is all-powerful, why does he allow blank and you fill in the blank? And that day, Johanna's father, just a teenager at that time, clenched his fist toward the heaven, and he cursed God. And he said, you're no God to me to allow this to happen, to take my family and take this village. And he said, I make a vow. I'll never bow my knee to you again, ever. Aren't you glad when you're not looking for God? God's still looking for you. <laughs> I don't have time to tell the whole story, but he eventually escapes two concentration camps. He goes to Indonesia. He meets a Chinese Buddhist girl raised in Buddhism, raised in occultism. They get married. They come back to Holland. She's miserable, lonely. Powers of darkness have trailed her all the way back. He's bitter and angry because of his background. And one day some friends invite her to go to a meeting. She thinks she's going to Amsterdam to see the lights. She thinks she's going to a party I don't know if they meant to trick her or not, but she ended up in a Billy Graham meeting. <laughs> She'd never heard of Billy Graham. She'd never seen anybody preach from a Bible. She had no knowledge of it. But she said, I've heard her tell it many times. Billy Graham said, get ready. Jesus is going to come talk to you. Are you going to meet him today? And she said, I did. She had a vision of Jesus sitting in that stadium. And when Billy Graham gave the invitation, she walked down that aisle, a Chinese Buddhist. She walked back up that aisle, a Chinese believer changed by the power of God. Hallelujah. That ought to make everybody say amen. <laughs> I didn't know her as a Buddhist, I've only known her as a believer. It takes a long time to tell the story, and I don't have time to tell it tonight. I just want to tell you, I wouldn't be here. My wife wouldn't be where she is. Our whole family wouldn't be where we are if it wouldn't be for God's grace. Amen. When Johanna was 10, they immigrated to the United States. By that time, her father, who said he had never bowed his knee to God again, he had. And um, they settled in a little western Kansas town called Garden City, Kansas. They started attending a little church. I went there as a single evangelist, and we had a great meeting. <laughs> I don't remember much about the revival, but that's where I met my wife. So, <laughs> so I'm pretty pumped about God's grace. I'm pretty pumped about missions. I'm glad somebody sent Billy Graham. I'm glad somebody told the story of Jesus, and that's what we're here today to do. And my story's not nearly as exotic as Johanna's. Buddhism, occultism, Billy Graham. I'm from Sour Lake, Texas. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a Buddhist even come through Sour Lake. <laughs> a lot of Baptists. <laughs> Everybody's Baptist at least once in Sour Lake. <laughs> My dad was a high school dropout, left school at 10th grade, got started in the wrong path, began to drink, became addicted to alcohol, got married to mom when he was 30 years old, 
By this time, he's so dysfunctional, he could hardly hold a job. He led her into that lifestyle. Seven years, they didn't have any children. Doctors said they wouldn't have any. I was somewhat of a shock to their system when I was announced. He began to wonder, how am I going to be a father, an effective dad in this condition? So dysfunctional, so addicted. One day, about six months before I was born, he's driving along, and he had a supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ. In one split second, he was saved, he was delivered, he was radically changed. I never saw him take a drink. He never took another drink from that moment. I know there's a lot of steps to sobriety. There's 12-step programs and this and that. But I'm still old-fashioned enough to believe that there's a supernatural power of God that one minute you can be bound and the next minute you can be free. Amen? That's the power of God. He was radically changed. That's grace. <laughs> That's not the end of the miracle. Okay, he's saved. He's been an alcoholic, working in the oil fields of southeast Texas. Now he's saved. Six months later, they're appointing pastor of a church before he's ever preached a sermon. <laughs> you say, well, that's not logical. You're right. <laughs> With such a little church, I guess they figured he couldn't mess it up. <laughs> Nobody there but his family. I mean, when I say little, it didn't seat 90 people. We didn't have an office. He didn't have a secretary. He didn't have a deacon board. He didn't have a tra We didn't even have a foyer in our church, either in or out of our little church. <laughs> but he and mom stayed there 22 years. That's where I grew up. Wouldn't have been for God's grace. I could have been raised in a drunkard's home. When I was eight years old, dad came to me and he said, son, you're our new pianist. I said, I'm only eight. He said, you're all we have. Nobody else can play. I said, well, I only know one song. He said, don't worry, we'll sing it every week. He said, you've been taking lessons? I said, yes. He said, well, the lady that's teaching the lessons, that's our church pianist. Her husband's transferred out of town. They're leaving and we have nobody else. He said, I'll tell you what. You play the song you know, we'll sing it. Then you sit on the piano bench and you pray for God to teach you how to play those other songs while we sing them a cappella. You know what a cappella means. That's a Latin word that means we don't have a piano player. That's what it really means. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> Mother had another idea. Take lessons, practice. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, when you realize what's going on in the world, it seems like an impossible task. And sometimes we feel ill-equipped, unqualified. What kind of contribution can I make? In fact, isn't that the question most people ask? What's my purpose in life? What will I do that really makes a difference? Can I do anything that really matters? I say, whatever God's placed in your life as a gift, whatever he's put in your hand, you use it for his glory. In a little while, we're going to ask you to get involved. Your prayers are important. Your giving is important. But I can tell you, if God can take an alcoholic and make a pastor out of him and let him stay in one church for 20, if he can take an 8-year-old boy, and that's been my life of music ministry, started at 8 he can use everybody in this room to see God do something special, greater than it's ever been before. I have a text I want to read and 
share a few things with you. But is it okay if, before I do that if I kind of demonstrate my gift? Can I play the piano? Is that all right for you? One, two, three. God bless you. <laughs> I need encouragement. You have to. No, I'm just. Uh, I believe his truth is marching on. Amen. <laughs> Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. In a moment, I'll read verse 24. There's only one time that we are aware of that Jesus ever went to a truly pagan place. Four times during his ministry, he sought to get away from the crowd. Usually, he went to a place to pray, up on a mountain, sometimes in an obscure place. On this occasion, he went all the way to a place called Tyre and Sidon. It is an ancient Phoenicia, and it was the site of the worship of Baal and other gods, pagan gods and goddesses quite an unusual place for a Jew to go. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 says, Jesus left that place and went 
to the vicinity or the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. I want you to notice those words. He could not be hidden. A woman whose daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and begged Jesus to drive out that demon spirit. If you've read Scripture, you know a little bit about that story. This is the woman who wouldn't take no for an answer. Jesus said to her even, no. And he said something that's kind of strange. He says, children's bread should not be given to dogs. And she said, even to dogs under the table. Eat little children's crumbs. See, in, in this place, he could not be hidden. When he went to the regions of Tyre seeking to hide himself away, the word of his presence compelled this Gentile woman. In those days, a Gentile was known as a pagan. She sought after him. There as, as in everywhere else, he could not be hidden. He was not hidden at birth. Despite the apparent conspiracy between the innkeeper in Bethlehem and the emperor in Rome to see that the Logos of God, the eternally begotten Word of God, would be born in a place that would hide him so that it could be said he was hidden in his birth, not true. God had other plans. Even though there was no announcement in the Bethlehem Gazette, there was no shower for Jesus' mother Mary, God saw to it that the celestial creation poised over that cow stable in Bethlehem. Angelic armies came singing courses as awestruck sheep and thunderstruck shepherds looked upon this occasion. Kings of Persia came from afar to worship him. Well... We know about that from the Christmas story. He could not be hidden. He wasn't hidden at his birth. He wasn't hidden at his baptism. God actually spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Every time he tried to get away, he was interrupted by the crowd who had seen him perform a miracle like feeding 5,000 or time that he actually cast a demon out of an individual. He was not hidden at the cross. You know the story, the Via Della Rosa, the beating, the crown of thorns, the statement, it is finished, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and the darkness that covered the face of the earth. He was certainly the center of attention when they ran to the tomb and found that it was empty. All I'm trying to say is that in every stage of life. What was true then is true in all of history. Jesus cannot be hidden. In every century, Satan has had his conspirators that would like to stamp out the existence of the Savior, to neutralize his existence and his influence and destroy his divinity. But Satan has never won. Doubters should have known that something unusual was happening when the one man, this single individual in all the earth who wanted to hide Jesus, obscure him and his message, this one single individual of all history who did the most to destroy his influence, 
suddenly there was a change in his life, and he did the most to reveal him. Saul, who was the persecutor of the church, became Paul, who wrote 13 epistles, and probably even your understanding has been enhanced by his writings. During the first three centuries came ten great waves of Roman persecution. Ten onslaughts of the Roman Empire against the message and the work and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in spite of all of that, the church survived. Nero, that ridiculous emperor in A.D. 60, took bright-eyed Christian teenagers, impaled them on sticks of wood, and covering their bodies with pitch, he put them on the wall of his Roman villa and set them on fire to light his way as he walked toward his parties. Surely, with all of that, the horrible persecution of Nero, cowering in the catacombs, somebody must have said, Will Jesus be hidden now? No, we've heard it many times. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And one wave after another that continued until A.D. 298, it looked like that the church was going to be destroyed. Emperor Diocletian, the last persecuting emperor, was going to destroy the Christian faith from the earth. That was his Intention. So when you look at church history, you see the evidence of that persecution. Christians at Alexandria, Christians in North Africa had their tongues cut out. They were boiled in oil and thrown into the sea. In the Roman Colosseum, they threw Christians to the lines. They imprisoned the ministers. They murdered the Christians, and they took their books and burned them to ashes. In fact, Diocletian erected a column in the city of Rome, and on that column was written in Latin that the name of Christ was extinct. But a strange thing happened. When Satan thinks he has won, he hasn't. Diocletian divided his empire up, and one of the men, one of the leaders, one of the fellows who followed after him in A.D. 312 looked up into the sky and saw a special revelation. He saw a cross, and Constantine decided that he should declare Christianity to be the national religion. Regardless of what you think about Constantine and his conversion, I can tell you that Jesus could not be hidden. Some may erroneously believe that martyrdom is a thing of the past, but that's not so. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. About 250 million Christians in 60 countries currently are suffering persecution. Globally, approximately one in every 10 Christians suffers persecution, and every 24 hours, 480 believers are martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. 4.8 billion people have never had an adequate presentation of a gospel message. From the horrendous pictures of ISIS beheading Coptic Christians to even in our own tribe, we've suffered persecution. Saheed Williams, our first appointed missionary 
from Pakistan to Pakistan was brutally assassinated. At his funeral, the general superintendent of Pakistan said over a thousand people attended. Just a young man with a four-year-old daughter and a beautiful wife. He'd been brutally martyred because of his faith. He said, I preached the gospel. I gave an invitation. People were converted. But he said, I was led to do one more thing. I said, how many young people would be willing to take Saeed's place? And with him still in his casket, understanding what they were doing, 100 teenagers walked forward and said, we'll take his place. Can I tell you that Satan will never win? No matter what happens in the Josh district of Nigeria, one of our church planting pastors who planted 75 churches had his hands cut off and his feet cut off and his eyes gouged out and they burned him to death. And Pastor Satu was martyred for the faith. But I can tell you, no matter how bad it is and no matter what Satan thinks he's done, the church will survive. Amen. I'm building a church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is our posture today? Do we diminish our efforts? Do we quit? I mean, why is pastor saying today we're going to take an offering, we receive an offering, and we're going to invest it in missionary activity around the world? We're going to help that persecuted church. Missionary Hudson Taylor, the great missionary statesman in China, said, I have found there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Then it is done. Hallelujah. We started with just 300 in the Assemblies of God in 1914, and 100% of our constituency at that time resided within the United States. Today, we number over 65 to 68 million around the world. <laughs> We're not the only one preaching truth, but God is blessed, and every 63 minutes a new church is formed somewhere on the planet, and every 29 seconds somebody gets saved. There are presently 370-something thousand assemblies of God churches in the, United, in the states and around the world, and they're growing at one every 63 minutes. Now, put that in perspective. That's 10 times more churches than there are McDonald's in the world. <laughs> and we serve better food. <laughs> oh, I'm not busting on the Big Mac. I'm just saying the bread of life is preferable to anything McDonald's. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> 1949, China became communist, 750,000 believers. The church was persecuted, driven underground. The Cultural Revolution contributed to that. 11 million student members of the Red Guard were sent to wipe out all vestiges of counter-revolutionary activity. Chairman Mao's wife in the middle of that Cultural Revolution said that Christianity in China has been confined to the history section of the museum. It's dead and buried today. It's not Christianity that's in the dustbin of history in China. It's the sayings of Chairman Mao. We have as part of the Bible Alliance and Life Publishers, we have provided a fire Bible, three million of them, Pentecostal study Bible, so that every one of the three million house church pastors can have one. I'm telling you that Jesus is not hidden ever, and he will not be hidden because he's building the church. <laughs> Cuba, 
1990, they only had 90 churches and 12,000 people worshiping those churches. It was illegal for five or more persons to meet in a home. Revival broke out. Government leaders came to the AG leaders and said, you're growing so strong. The, <laughs> the churches are so packed. People are in the streets. It's destroying our traffic flow. You're going to have to start letting them meet in homes. It had been illegal to do that. They gave consent and actually asked it to happen. Arson Vila started a house church. Before long, people began to come. So many people got saved and healed. They moved out into the yard. Then they moved out into the street. And the authorities came and said, this is what we were trying to stop. You're going to have to stop. You can't do this. He said, I didn't start it, and I can't stop it. <laughs> They said, we're going to put you in prison. He said, okay. They put him in prison, and a few months later, let him out. Somebody says, why? Well, Christians were praying, but the real reason, they said he's winning more people to Jesus inside the prison than he was winning out. He's more dangerous inside prison than he is out, so they turned him out. Come on. If God can do that in the midst of persecution, you know what's happening in China today? 35,000 people a day are coming to Christ, 75,000. Percent of them are spirit-empowered, and the church is growing. Over 100 million believers from 750,000. I say if God has promised he's going to build a church, he's going to build a church, and the devil will never win. Amen. I just came from Perm, Russia. I was there in the month of September celebrating the 25th anniversary of the church there. I met the first convert. She was saved 25 years ago at the age of 57. She's still saved, and she's the treasure of the church. <laughs> they have, I was there at the fall of the Iron Curtain. I preached the graduation, the first graduating class of the Theological Bible Institute. I was escorted around Moscow by one of the graduates. He has built six churches in Moscow. He has eight rehab centers. The church in Perm has 4,000 believers. They're believing for 10,000 new churches in Russia. Come on, if God can do that in Russia, how many believes that he can help us make disciples all over the world? <laughs> they just passed a law in Russia. I don't know if you read about it. You can't evangelize anymore. You can't proselytize anymore. You can't invite anybody to your church. If you don't own your building, you can't rent. You'll close it down. I said to my friend, I said, how are y'all going to do that? He said, we're just going to do it. I said, well, what if you're persecuted? He said, we've already been persecuted. <laughs> I said, well, what's going to happen? He said, the church is going to flourish. <laughs> it always flourishes in persecution. He cannot be hidden. See, some people are paying a pretty high price for the church to go forward. They have the hard part. I could take you around the world. One of the greatest revivals going right now we can't even talk about is in Iran. People are getting saved by the thousands. They're studying the Bible in mosque. <laughs> God must have a sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, on and on and on it goes. You say, well, what can I do? How can I get involved? I was speaking, asking people to give to this 
fire Bible I talked about a moment ago. Sitting on the fourth row was a little six-year-old girl. Her name was Lauren. She, she was sitting there with her grandmother. And the reason she was with her grandmother because her mother was a meth addict. And her mother had lost her home, lost her job, lost her husband. And the courts had taken little Lauren and her baby sister away from their mother because she was an unfit brother. And the reason she was there, sitting by her grandmother, is because the grandfather was the pastor of the church. And her mother was the pastor's daughter. She'd been raised in church. She'd been raised in Sunday school. She'd been raised in camp. But she got addicted to meth. Only 3% of meth addicts ever get free. I was challenging people to give. Little Lauren tapped her grandmother on the shoulder and said, Would you go over to the parsonage and get my piggy bank? I've been saving money to buy mommy a house. And I want to give it to that man for those Bibles. She's sick. She didn't understand it. Nothing she could put in a piggy bank would be adequate to buy a house. She just knew something was broken at her house, and she was trying to help fix it. <laughs> I was kind of standing down front. I can't get down here, but and she came walking down that aisle. It, it wasn't a, a piggy bank that you buy. It was a it was a it was a quart jar, a fruit jar. I found out later it was $12.45 in it. I just saw a bunch of nickels and dimes and pennies in it. And she comes down the aisle, and she's holding it up to me, and she's trying to give it to me. And I knew a little bit about her story, and I knew a little bit about her mother, and I knew a little bit about the pastor's daughter and about Lauren. I, I just didn't know the whole story. But I knew enough to know that it was bad. And she's holding that up to me. And I don't know, I kind of love, Pastor, I love to take offerings. I tell you, I, I, I think you can tell I'm a little passionate about this. But that night, I didn't want to take that money from that baby. So I'm leaning over, and I'm trying to tell her, honey, you take this money because you're trying to help your mommy, and these people are going to help me do all I need to do, and they'll give me money. And I'm in the middle of that conversation trying to give her her money back, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me. It wasn't an audible voice, but the Holy Spirit spoke and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving Lauren her money back. And the Holy Spirit spoke and said, she didn't give it to you. I don't know if you've ever been spoken to by the Holy Spirit in a reprimand form, but that gets your attention. <laughs> I said, okay. See, she taught me something that night. Three things, and I close. Number one, everybody can do something. I mean, she's given all she had. She's doing something. Number two, everybody... Maybe can stretch a little bit. You say, what stretch? It's just do a little bit more. <laughs> See, her mother was facing 23 felony counts, three years in prison. The judge says she doesn't deserve any mercy. Her parole officer says she's the worst case I ever dealt with. But the third word is the word seed. I know some people have misused that manipulated it for their own personal gain. But I still believe that Genesis 8.22 says there's seed time and harvest. The Bible says given it shall be given. If you sow sparingly, you'll sweep sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. I, I just know one thing. God's not going to ask you to give what you don't have. But frequently he will ask you to give what you would like to keep. 
I don't know. I don't think Lauren understood all of that. I just derived those three words, something, stretch, seed. I just know one thing. I left that night. I called back to Eddie, and I said, tell Lauren I'm going to replenish her piggy bank. And he said, it's too late. Somebody's already filled it back up. <laughs> Harvest. <laughs> so you can't make any withdrawals from God's bank if you hadn't made any deposits. And I took her one year later to a banquet where I was raising money from a group of pastors and district leaders, and there's about 500 over there. And I told her story, and I had that fruit jar full again. And I <laughs> had her tell that story. And they pledged over $2 million that night for missions. That's a pretty good offering, amen? I don't know. I probably am over top on this, but I emptied her jar and made her stand at the door, and she collected another $2,000 for Bibles. Harvest. But the greatest harvest is when she, her mother stood before that judge, and he said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but if you'll go to a halfway house that I prescribe, I won't send you to prison. And she... Uh, Went there, and six months later, she was saved and delivered from meth. Come on. And one year later, the same judge that took her babies away from her gave them back to her. And that mother tonight is a worship leader in a church. Praise God. I can tell you that tonight we can make a difference. We have the easier part we're just give some dollars you say well stretch well maybe God will take you to a place out of your comfort zone I don't know when our missionaries are imprisoned or killed we will send more missionaries when our missionaries fail and our teams implode we will repent revise our structure improve our preparation training and pastoral care and send new teams Neither spiritual nor physical attacks will deter us from living among resistant people and lovingly proclaiming the gospel to them in Jesus' name. We will not retreat. That's a statement from a group of young people called the Live Dead Movement in the Middle East and North Africa. Father, if they're willing to give that much, how much can we give tonight in Jesus name amen